Welcome to this episode of Litigation Briefs, Media Shorts on Law and Courts. I'm Scott Dodson, a distinguished professor of law at UC Hastings College of the Law and the director of the Center for Litigation and Courts, which produces this series. News reports often reference multi-district litigation, or MDL, in connection with some of the biggest and most high-profile lawsuits, opioids, asbestos, talcum powder, airbags. What are MDLs? How do they work? And are they good for civil litigation? Here to help me with these questions is my guest, Andrew Bratt, professor of law at Berkeley Law School and the faculty director of the Civil Justice Research Institute. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What is multi-district litigation? Well, multi-district litigation is a mechanism created by the Congress in 1968 that allows for cases that are pending in multiple federal districts uh, to be centralized before a single judge for pretrial proceedings. So the idea is, is that if you have a bunch of cases that involve similar subject matter, pending around the country in the federal courts. The MDL statute allows for those cases to all be sent to a single federal judge for pretrial proceedings, like pleading, motions, discovery, uh, that sort of thing, all the way up until the cases are ready for trial. And then, in theory, the cases are sent back to the districts where they were originally filed. What are some examples of MDLs? Well. Uh, as you indicated at the outset, uh, virtually any major legal controversy that finds its way to the federal courts of any size can wind up in an MDL. Uh, I think one of the things that is useful to know about the MDL statute is that it literally applies to any cases that share a, quote, common question of fact that are pending in multiple districts. So anything could be the subject of an MDL, as long as there are multiple cases that share a common factual question around the country. So it could be everything from securities fraud cases, antitrust cases, products liability cases, uh, single event disasters like the British Petroleum oil spill, um, all the way down to new kinds of lawsuits that arise based on something that happens in the world, like data breach litigation or something along those lines. So the, the, the scope of MDL has covered everything from, as you mentioned, all sorts of medical device kinds of cases like defective pelvic mesh or defective hip implants to all kinds of defective drugs like diet drugs or arguably opioids. Uh, and all kinds of uh, really other kinds of high profile cases like NFL concussion litigation, as I said, the British Petroleum oil spill uh, and uh, and on and on. So so really anything of uh, nationwide import is almost inevitably going to become the subject of an MDL. How does the process work for MDLs? Well, that's a good question. Uh, and uh, it's very unusual uh, in the world of litigation. In typical litigation, of course, the plaintiff will choose the forum 
And then uh, in all of the federal districts now, uh, assuming the case is not related to others that are already pending, you'll get a random judicial assignment of a judge who will hear that case from beginning to end. The MDL process is different because there's a panel of judges called the Judicial Panel on Multidistrict Litigation that's been appointed by the Chief Justice. These seven judges meet every other month uh, and decide uh, whether cases should be the subject of an MD MDL. And if they conclude that they should be, they handpick the judge and the location where pretrial proceedings will go forward. So, for instance, in a case like we'll just say the, the, the litigation against Johnson & Johnson that argues that uh, talc is uh, defective and causes a whole host of medical problems, cases might be filed all the way around the country. Anybody can ask the Judicial Panel on Multidistrict Litigation to decide whether or not to take those cases and send them to a single judge for pretrial proceedings. And if the panel agrees, then the panel will decide for itself without any limitation which judge will be the one that they have selected to hear those cases. The only real constraint on uh, the judicial panel in selecting a judge is that the judge has to agree to accept it. They can't foist a new multi-district litigation on a judge that doesn't want it. Um, but if the judge agrees, then uh, the panel can decide to create the MDL literally in any federal district court before any federal district judge. What happens with trials? Well, that's a great question. It used to be that MDL judges, that is the judges to whom these cases have been assigned for pretrial proceedings, believed that they could transfer cases to themselves permanently for trial. So that is, let's say there's an MDL that's been established in Chicago in the Northern District of Illinois. And one of the cases transferred into the MDL is from uh, Los Angeles. In theory, what the MDL statute says is that that case from Los Angeles will be within the MDL court in Chicago until pretrial proceedings are over. That is all the way up until the case is ready for trial, and then it would go back. Well, MDL judges until the 1990s believed that they could, if they wanted to, transfer that Los Angeles case to Chicago permanently for pretrial proceedings under the general federal transfer statute. 28 U.S.C. 1404A. I mean, obviously, transfers would likely occur pretrial. The MDL court has power to handle centralized pretrial proceedings. So why not uh, allow the MDL court to transfer cases to themselves for trial? The Supreme Court said unanimously in a case called Lexicon uh, that, in fact, MDL judges cannot do that. MDL judges have to remand the cases when pretrial proceedings conclude. They can't transfer them to themselves for trial. So you might ask yourself, well, that must mean that there are no trials in MDLs, right? But that would be wrong. In fact, there are lots of trials in MDLs. And arguably in a world in which the civil trial rate uh, is becoming vanishingly small in the federal courts, MDLs are a, an area where seemingly against the odds, trials thrive. Why? Well, it's because the parties within the MDL court have a strong interest in generating some information about the relative strengths and weaknesses of their case at trial. And the reason for that is that a lot of what the defendants and really plaintiffs are trying to do in MDL is reach 
either a global settlement or a set of settlements that will end the litigation and make remand unnecessary. But parties don't really have a good sense for what the settlement ought to look like until they get some cracks at trying some of these cases. And so what the MDL judge will often do is have so-called bellwether trials. The bellwether being a um, reference to uh, a sheep among the herd that wears a cowbell, or I guess a sheep bell uh, under the, in this case, that actually leads the herd. And so in theory, a bellwether trial, it's sort of a leader or a representative of the many cases that might go into an MDL. And so understanding why we would want to have bellwether trials and understanding why they might be useful, we still have to confront the problem that uh, Lexicon says that an MDL judge cannot hear cases transferred to him or her for trial. So how do they get around this? Well, one possibility is that there are cases that are filed uh, in the MDL court for all purposes. That is, they don't need to be transferred from somewhere else. There might be personal jurisdiction over the defendant in the MDL court. It might be a proper venue. And under those circumstances, the MDL judge is free to try those cases because they haven't been transferred. Alternatively, uh, if the parties want to have uh, bellwether trials of cases that are not within the jurisdiction of the MDL court, the parties could consent. That is, the parties could consent and agree to uh, a bellwether trial, even though lexicon would otherwise say that the cases should be remanded. These are often called in the business lexicon waivers. Uh, and so if the parties are able to agree to a case that they would like to try for bellwether purposes, even if it's not within the jurisdiction of the MDL court, they can simply stipulate uh, and have the trial. And so often what an MDL court will do is have a series of these bellwether trials. And then depending on the results, the parties may be able to then come to the table for a settlement uh, in a more informed way. Now, these MDLs are in federal court. Do state courts also have MDLs? Many do. Uh, and the number is growing. Um, now, from my point of view, the MDL mechanism has been extremely successful. I know that, you know, some people have criticisms of the process and, and perhaps we'll talk about those. But I think that the, the MDL system, by and large, has been uh, a great success, largely because it has provided a viable mechanism for aggregation and increased efficiency in the federal courts. It just makes sense that if you're going to have hundreds, potentially thousands of cases involving similar facts with the same defendant, you're not going to want to do discovery all of those times. You're not going to want to argue the same motions all of those times. You're not going to want to uh, subject the witnesses um, to uh, an unlimited number, potentially, of trials or depositions. And so I think because of that success, uh, states have decided to uh, have MDL statutes of their own. Now, of course, the federal courts are courts of limited subject matter jurisdiction. Everybody listening to this podcast knows that. Uh, the MDL statute does not increase or expand the subject matter jurisdiction of the federal courts. So there are going to be lots and lots of cases that exist in the state courts, but can't get into a federal MDL, either because there's no diversity jurisdiction uh, or what or the defendant can't remove uh, or uh, what have you. And so many states have started creating their own state court MDL analogs uh, that allow for similar kinds of pretrial aggregation 
um, in the states. And often those state analog MDLs, so let's say, for instance, that there are a lot of state court cases in California, there's no diversity because the defendant uh, is from California, the plaintiffs are from California, so those cases can't be removed and they can't go into the federal MDL. But if there's a federal MDL and a California MDL proceeding in parallel, often the judges in those two aggregated cases will collaborate and interact with one another in order to try to maintain consistency and also enhance the efficiency of the process, even though you might have litigations that are pending at the state level and the federal level at the same time. How are MDLs different from class actions? Well, they're, they're different in many ways, um, but they're also similar uh, in many ways. Both a class action and an MDL are mechanisms to litigate lots and lots of claims all at once. And there might be an array of goals uh, that are similar for that. Of course, you want to increase efficiency for some of the reasons that I've mentioned already. It doesn't make sense um, for uh, the parties to have to repeat the same activity over and over again. Arguably, also, it's way more efficient for our court system because our courts simply cannot handle all of these cases being litigated on a one-by-one one basis. And so both the class action and the MDL uh, will serve that efficiency-generating purpose. It's also the case that MDL and class actions may serve the purpose of enhancing law enforcement by leveling the playing field uh, between plaintiffs and a far more well-resourced corporate defendant, perhaps. And so uh, instead of having David versus Goliath and all of those cases, you can put all the Davids together and put them on a team uh, that can actually stack up to Goliath. But even though there's a lot of similarities, there are significant differences between the way class actions and MDLs work. A class action is a representative lawsuit. It's a lawsuit that is prosecuted by an individual or a small number of individuals on behalf of a set of similarly situated members of the class. But the class members don't participate in the litigation. Their litigation is prosecuted by the representative. That representative has to be an adequate representative of the class as a matter of due process uh, under the Constitution. Uh, but at the end of the day, the representative is going to prosecute the litigation and all of the class members will ultimately be bound to that result. It, MDLs are not representative suits. MDLs are all cases that have been filed by plaintiffs against the defendant with their own attorney. That is, every individual member of an MDL is represented uh, by themselves. They're not being represented by another class representative. They're being represented uh, by themselves and by their own lawyer. Now, that's oversimplifying things a little bit because you could have class actions as part of an MDL, uh, et cetera. But that's that's the main the main difference. Now, before overstating the main difference, though, it's also important, I think, to recognize that the way that MDLs ultimately work looks a lot like a representative lawsuit. Why? Because once all of these cases are put into an MDL before a single judge, that single judge is not going to be handling each one of those cases individually. That defeats the whole purpose. 
What the judge is going to want to do is figure out how we can think about handling pretrial proceedings on an aggregated basis. And so what they do is appoint leadership counsel uh, on the plaintiff side and sometimes on the defense side, too, if there are multiple defendants. And those lawyers who have been appointed to the leadership will be the ones who prosecute the suit, at least while it's in the MDL court. And because MDL cases more often than not will be resolved within the MDL court, through hopefully a settlement, uh, then um, it may very well be that any individual plaintiff in an MDL and even their own lawyer, if they're not uh, among the lawyers selected to leadership, may actually do very little. And they may actually act a lot like an absent class member. Um, but at the end of the day, they're not absentees. They're not bound by what the MDL, what any individual other plaintiff in the MDL does. Uh, and they get to decide uh, whether to opt in to any potential settlement, as opposed to a class action where they would have to decide whether to opt out of any potential settlement. So there are real differences that matter between a class action and an MDL. But conceptually, the structures of the two are very different. Are there problems with MDLs? Well, you know... <laughs> MDL has become an increasingly big deal uh, in uh, the federal courts. Uh, I think for much of the 70s and the 80s and even into the 1990s, MDL was a bit of a second banana to the class action, particularly when it comes to big mass tort cases. But by the time you get to the 1990s uh, and into the 2000s, it becomes clearer and clearer that mass tort class actions are going to be extraordinarily hard to maintain in the federal courts uh, based on the courts of appeals interpretations uh, and the Supreme Court's interpretations of uh, the class action rule, rule 23. Uh, you're just not gonna be able to have mass tort class actions uh, in the federal courts for a variety of reasons. Then Congress in 2005 passed a statute called the Class Action Fairness Act, which effectively means that almost all putative class actions are going to be uh, wind up are going to wind up being litigated in the federal courts. So that creates a real problem for mass tort aggregate litigation uh, going forward. The class action is likely unavailable. So what's been there hiding in the background in plain sight all along? The MDL statute. Uh, and in a world that without the mass tort class action, uh, the MDL statute becomes a lot more important. And indeed, the amount of cases in MDLs has really increased a lot over the past 25 or so years, such to the point now where uh, if you just take a total, and this is a very uh, crude way of doing it, almost 70 percent of the currently pending cases in the federal courts on the civil side are within an MDL. That number is higher than it should be because there is one enormous MDL in Florida involving uh, defective uh, combat earplugs that has become the largest MDL in history and has inflated those numbers. But the story remains true that MDL has become far more important in the last 25 years than it ever had been before. And with increased prominence is gonna come increased scrutiny and increased potential criticism. And so there are lots of problems with MDLs uh, that critics have raised. So for instance, 
major, major national problems find their way into an MDL before a single judge. Opioids is a fantastic example. An extraordinary public health crisis involving billions of dollars of potential damages, potentially enormously complicated injunctions uh, to remediate the opioids crisis. And yet, because Congress has failed to do anything by legislation, this has wound up in the hands of a single judge, federal judge in Cleveland, Ohio. And that federal judge doesn't have any resources other than his judicial assistant, his court clerk, and his two law clerks. And so what we have here is a problem of nationwide scope that's essentially been dumped into the lap of a single federal judge to manage. And arguably, that is simply not a good way uh, to make social policy. The parties also have concerns about MDLs. On the plaintiff's side, there's a concern that uh, what the courts are really more concerned about is efficiency than justice for the individual plaintiff. And because, in their view, what the MDL process prizes over all else is resolution, so that these thousands of cases can be taken off the plates of federal judges, there's a concern that uh, what uh, all of the folks involved in MDL are really more interested in is getting a settlement. And that settlement may uh, actually not be the best result for any particular plaintiff that's in the group. That problem is also arguably exacerbated by the fact that we have a lot of repeat players in the MDL system. And you could sort of understand why that's true. The Judicial Panel on Multidistrict Litigation wants to assign these cases to judges who have a proven track record in resolving them. Those judges, when they're looking for plaintiff's leadership counsel, they want lawyers who are experienced and well-versed in this practice. So they choose people who have been involved in MDLs before. Defendants, for their part, they want to hire lawyers who are experienced in MDLs because they want to know how best to navigate this situation. And so what that means is that you wind up having a lot of the usual suspects involved in these massive cases. And arguably, these usual suspects are more chummy with one another than adversarial. And the fear is, is that they may agree to a deal uh, that may not be good for one set of clients or the other in an effort to um, resolve these cases and then get appointed again in the future. So arguably it's a vicious cycle. Defendants for their part fear that the MDL is like a field of dreams. That is, well, if we create one case in one court that's going to involve thousands of plaintiffs, no individual plaintiff's case is going to be examined with great scrutiny. There's simply no way to do it. And so the fear is that you'll get a lot of plaintiffs without meritorious cases who simply come along for the ride and then ultimately have to be paid off to go away later. Um, so there are a lot of concerns uh, about MDLs uh, from all sides. My own view is that all of these concerns are overblown uh, and that, in fact, the fact that, that there's a lot of criticism of MDL, but it seems to come from all directions, may mean that MDL is actually a workable compromise uh, that uh, can get us uh, through. Uh, but as MDL has become more important, it's attracted a lot more fire uh, from critics in the academy, critics at the bar, and, uh, and critics uh, uh, from the judiciary.
how might you tweak MDLs to make them better, maybe to make it a more effective compromise? Well, I will say that I am not a fan of tweaking the formal machinery of MDLs. The MDL statute was designed specifically to be flexible because the framers of the statute saw the future and they knew that more and more complex litigation, mass torts, big cases were going to find their way into the federal courts. And so they intentionally designed a statute that did not mandate a lot of one size fits all solutions or procedures. The goal was to make MDL flexible so that judges could adapt and innovate. And indeed, I think this adaptation and innovation ability has been one of the secrets of MDL's success over the years. It hasn't ever gotten stuck. Judges have been able to adapt over time as the world has changed. They've been able to adapt to different kinds of cases uh, that have come before them. So I'm a strong believer that we should not be enacting any kind of one-size-fits-all restrictions on what judges can do in MDLs. So my own view would be we certainly certainly should not open Pandora's box to le legislation, and we shouldn't have any more federal rules of civil procedure specifically for MDLs. The regular old federal rules seem to me to be doing just fine. However, that's not to say that there aren't ways to tweak some of what MDL judges do in these cases in order to mitigate some of the issues that folks have raised. But I think the best way to do that is through guidance to judges uh, and best practices rather than through any kind of legislation or rulemaking. So the Federal Judicial Center has embarked on the project of revising the Manual for Complex Litigation, which, which gives judges advice on their options when seeing an array of different complicated uh, cases. I think that you're seeing now a lot more collaboration and information sharing among MDL judges, aided to some degree by the magic of the internet uh, uh, that allows judges to learn from one another uh, and understand that, for instance, you might be able to do some things early on in the litigation to prevent concerns that you might have a whole set of uh, unvetted claims. Uh, I think that MDL judges have grown far more um, attentive to the problem of repeat players and have started appointing newer, younger, more diverse slates of leadership to try to encourage uh, more folks to become experienced in the process. Uh, and uh, I personally am not terribly concerned about uh, the problem of uh, repeat players and MDL settlements. My own view is that MDLs actually provide uh, a lot of benefits to those who are in them. Uh, and my guess is, and my view is, is that most folks in an MDL are going to wind up better off for having been able uh, to be a part of it uh, than being outside the MDL. So all of that is to say that I, I think there are tweaks that could be made, but those tweaks are best left to individual judges in individual cases uh, to decide what's likely to work best under the circumstances. Well, Andrew, thanks for being on the show and for explaining MDLs. Thank you for having me. Uh, MDL is an incredibly exciting and uh, dynamic area uh, of practice. It's always evolving. Uh, and I think 
Um, that's one reason why why law students might consider it a, as an area of practice uh, and why anybody who's simply an educated observer of the American legal system ought to be attuned to what's going on in MDL. This episode was produced by the Center for Litigation and Courts at UC Hastings College of the Law. If you enjoyed this episode of Litigation Briefs, I hope you'll tune in to future episodes. In fact, I hope you'll consider subscribing to our YouTube channel and audio podcast, which can be accessed through the Center for Litigation and Courts website at sites.uchastings.edu slash CLC. While you're at it, encourage a friend to do the same. This is Litigation Briefs, respectfully submitted, Scott Dodson. <laughs>